promised i have a new creepy story to tell you now this isn't a haunting but this is a story that has always perplexed me ever since i found out about it and a lot of people have really strong opinions about it and whether or not you well i don't want to say too much up front but it's a disappearance it's extremely sad but it is a very mysterious story. So without further ado, I'm going to tell you about the disappearance of the five Sodder children. Christmas Eve, 1945, in Fayetteville, West Virginia, the Sodder home went up in smoke, and with it, five children. Christmas Eve is arguably the happiest night of the year. Children all over the world go to bed early, hardly able to sleep, waiting to hear the jingle of Santa's sleigh. Those few parents who are on their game and actually get to sleep on this night go to bed knowing tomorrow is going to be filled with smiles, food, and lots of cleanup. No one, and I mean no one, expects to be hit with tragedy in their own home, especially on Christmas Eve. The Slaughter family had a relatively normal day or what I assume was a normal day for this family of 13. George, George Jr., and John worked outside. Marion worked her shift at the local dime store and surprised her younger siblings with small gifts after dinner. Around 10 p.m., George and Jenny retire for the night. They take Sylvia, who's two, to bed with them. Their eldest son, John, 23, and 16-year-old George Jr. had spent the day working with their father and were already asleep. Maurice, who was 14, Martha, who was 12, Louis, who was 10, Jenny, who was 8, and Betty, who was 6, had asked their mother for permission to stay up past their bedtime. Jenny allows them to do so, as long as they remember to feed the barn animals, turn out all the lights, close all the windows, and lock all the doors before they go to bed. Later that night, around 12.30, Jenny was woken up by the phone ringing. She got up to answer it and found Marion asleep on the couch. The voice on the other end of the line was one she didn't recognize, and the person the woman asked for also wasn't someone Jenny recognized. So after noting some odd laughter in the background, Jenny informed the caller that they had the wrong number and hung up. After doing so, Jenny noticed that the drapes were still open, the lights were still on, and the door was unlocked. She assumed her children had simply forgot, with it being Christmas Eve and all, and she turns out the lights, locks the doors, and goes back to bed. Most of the Slaughter children slept upstairs in what the family called the attic. There were multiple rooms in the attic, though, so I don't think they were all sleeping in just one big room or anything. Jenny, however, did not go upstairs to check on her children as Marion was on the couch and nothing else seemed out of sorts. With no other indications that anything was wrong, she had no reason to go upstairs, and I probably wouldn't have either. Well, 
after hearing this case so many times, I actually might. Also, I'm paranoid and anxious, but we live in the 2020s and not the 1940s. Jenny returns to bed, only to be awoken again at 1am by a loud banging on the roof, followed by the sound of an object rolling off the roof. She thinks nothing of it and goes back to sleep. Jenny wakes up again at 1.30am to the smell of smoke. She wakes up her husband, jumps out of bed, and finds a fire in her husband's small office, coincidentally where the fuse box is. Jenny screams to her children upstairs to get out of the house. The staircase was engulfed in flames by this point, so she had hoped her children would be able to get out via a window or something. Once Jenny and her family were outside, a headcount revealed that five of her children were missing, the same five that had stayed up later than everyone else. The flames had risen in the last few minutes, preventing George from going in via the ground floor to rescue his children. He would have to go in through a window on the second floor. However, he always kept a ladder leaning on the side of the house, but that ladder was now missing. In a panic, George thought that maybe they could move one of the trucks under the window and he could help the kids get out that way, but his truck wouldn't start. He runs to a second truck on the property. Again, it refuses to start. They had both been working fine the previous day. Marion had run to a neighbor's house to call the fire department, but there was no response. This prompted another neighbor to go in search of the fire chief themselves, but help wouldn't show up to the solder house until well after the flames had reduced itself to ashes. A passing motorist had seen the flames and stopped at a tavern to call for help, and he too couldn't get through. While waiting for help, George Sauter tried helplessly to rescue his children. At one point, he tried to climb to the side of the house and break in through the attic window, cutting open his arm in the process, and was ultimately unsuccessful. A water trough that could have been used to distinguish the fire was frozen solid. This isn't an odd fact, it's December in West Virginia, it's just extremely unfortunate. When the fire chief was located, there was this ridiculous phone tree situation, and the fire chief claimed that he couldn't drive the truck himself, so he had to wait for someone else. The fire department showed up at 8 a.m. The fire started presumably between 1 and 1.30 a.m., taking into account the amount of time it took the Sauter family, the neighbors, and the motorists to alert the authorities it took the fire department at the minimum five hours to get to a home that was less than two miles from the station. When help did show up, there was nothing left of the solder home but rubble, ash, and the basement of the home. Neither the fire chief nor the police inspector could find an obvious cause and assumed it was an electrical issue, which George and Jenny never believed because they had never had any issues with their home's wiring before. And even after being unable to find any human remains in the rubble, both the fire chief and the inspector concluded that the missing children had indeed perished in the fire. Now, some people speculate that there was a conspiracy with the fire department and the police department, but Jenny and George didn't think that the fire department or the police had anything to do with their children's disappearance, as one of the firefighters that showed up was Jenny's brother. The parents of the missing children never believed their children perished in the fire, despite a coroner's inquest ruling that the fire was hot enough to destroy all traces of the children. No one had reported the smell of burning flesh during the course of the fire. There had been no screams heard and no remains had ever been found. I would just like to point out here, in case you're already just as upset as I am, that bones do not burn. Jenny does prove this later on, but I just wanted to add that now before you start screaming it in your car 
or out loud at work and then people look at you weird. Or am I the only person who does that? Moving on. George and Jenny insisted that a formal investigation be done seeing as several things just didn't add up. Like how the outside lights were working while the fire was still burning. Among the other things you've probably already noticed yourself. The whole outside lights still working while the fire was burning thing does suggest that there was not a wiring issue and George had actually had a new stove installed and the person that installed the stove in the house did check the wiring and there weren't any issues. But the police didn't conduct an investigation. Go figure. So George and Jenny sought out answers for themselves. Sifting through the rubble didn't reveal any skeletal remains. Jenny consults a crematorium and learns that they have to burn bodies at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for at least two hours to reduce most of the bones to ash, and even then, there are large fragments left behind and teeth. Teeth do not burn. In fact, most crematoriums have to do a second burn at a much higher temp to break them down because teeth are just so resistant to heat and a bunch of other things. So no, a normal house fire, even one that burned for more than two hours, would not have reduced every trace of five human bodies to ash, indistinguishable from normal rubble. The slaughter home only burned for an hour before the house was reduced to nothing but rubble and ash. There would be bones, if not half-charred bodies left behind. It's science, people. Even in the 40s, we had science, and the police ignored it. Hashtag laziness. George and Jenny collected several bits of strange evidence after the fire that just didn't make any sense and certainly didn't support what the authorities had told them. The Christmas lights that remained on during the early stages of the fire definitely should have gone out if the fire had been the result of an electrical issue. The ladder that had been missing from the side of the house was found in some sort of ditch or embankment only 75 feet from the house. The phone line had been cut, not burned, by someone willing to climb up the telephone pole and reach two feet away from them to cut the line. A man was identified by a neighbor for stealing a block and tackle from the Sauter's barn around the time of the fire. This man supposedly admitted to stealing and cutting the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but this suspect was never publicly identified, nor was a plausible reason for having a need to cut the power ever given. George was also convinced that the trucks had been tampered with that night, but it is possible that George and his son simply flooded the engines while trying to start the vehicle so quickly in their panic. The weird phone call, however, was proven to be just that, a wrong number. George and Jenny interviewed a bus driver from the area that stated, on the record, that he had seen what looked like fireballs being thrown at the solder home. Later that spring, when the snow melted, Sylvia, who was only two at the time, had found a strange green rubber object in a bush that resembled a pineapple bomb. George then recalled his wife saying that she had heard a loud bang and the rolling sound just half an hour before they were alerted to the fire. After that, the family was convinced that the fire started on the roof, but there was just no way to prove it. At a diner 50 miles away, a waitress insisted that she had seen the children on Christmas Day but couldn't remember how many adults were with them. After photographs of the missing children had been spread around, 
a woman came forward who said she saw the children with four adults at a hotel in South Carolina. These unconfirmed sightings and statements gave the parents of the missing children the hope they needed to keep the investigation going on their own. Jenny even burned chicken bones in an oven for 45 minutes to see if the bones were reduced to ash. Spoiler alert, they didn't. George and Jenny even learned of another fire that claimed an entire family of seven and burned for relatively the same length of time that their home did. Inside, intact, charred remains were found pretty quickly in the rubble of that fire. Death certificates had been issued on December 30th, only five days after the fire, for all five children. The next spring, George bulldozed over the remains of the house with new dirt, and he and his wife planted a memorial garden for which Jenny tended to for the rest of her life. The family did end up hiring a private investigator who found out that a door-to-door insurance salesman that had threatened George Sauter over his anti-Mussolini stance had actually served on the jury of the coroner's inquest. This private investigator turned up some evidence suggesting that the fire chief had actually found some human remains in the fire, which he packed in a metal box and buried it as to not upset the family any further. But if you ask me, he was trying to cover his own incompetence and shoddy police work. The investigator and George went to confront the fire chief and made him take them to where he buried the box. Supposedly, he had buried a heart, but they took what they found inside the box to a funeral director who examined the organ and surmised it was actually fresh beef liver that had never been exposed to fire. So the assumption here is that the chief did this to try and get the family to move on and just accept that the children had died in the fire. There were also reports that four vertebrae, possibly belonging to a small child, were found in the dirt covering the rubble. At the time, a a medical examiner stated that these vertebrae found belonged to a child between the ages of 14 and 16, which would match Maurice's age. But later, after more testing was done, another expert concluded that the vertebrae found were from someone between the ages of 17 and 22 and had never been exposed to fire. Some people believe that the fragments were placed in the filter as a cover-up, but no evidence has ever been found to support that theory. Six years after the devastating loss of their children, George and Jenny Sauter put up a billboard with pictures of their missing children, hoping to generate new leads in the case. They also offered a $5,000 reward, which later was raised to $10,000. Unfortunately, nothing came of this, and the trail went cold again. Then, in 1968, a photo was mailed to the Sauter family with a strange message on the back that read, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, LLIL, boys, A90132 or also possibly could have been A90135. This renewed the Sauter's hope that their children were still alive, even though most people thought this photo was a hoax. The photo does look a lot like Lewis, or what we would think he would look like as an adult. But the closer I looked, too many features just didn't match. His ears didn't poke out nearly as much as Lewis's did, the eyebrows are wrong, the cheekbones are too pronounced, I'm not a forensic anthropologist or anything like that, but that is my unprofessional opinion. Some facial features just don't change that much over time. And the Sauter children were very, very Italian, 
and the gentleman in this photo looks very Irish to me. The point of this fact is that this confirmed for the Slaughters that the five missing children were indeed alive. They hired another private investigator to track down the gentleman in the photo, but the PI went to Kentucky and never returned. I don't think that that's part of this mystery, I just think that the PI took the family's money and ran, but some people do think that this is another mysterious fact in the case that furthers their own speculations about what happened to the missing children. Many people still believe that the missing solder children did perish in the fire and that the parents just wouldn't accept it. But there are plenty of people who think the children were kidnapped. George owned a coal trucking business, and the coal business was under great pressure from the mafia back then, and the number 90132 that was on the back of the photograph, mailed to the family, did used to be the zip code for Palermo, Sicily back then. If you're not aware, Palermo is pretty much the capital of Mafia activity. I've been there myself, and even nowadays, people are still terrified of the Mafia there. I was there studying organized crime, believe it or not. Random fun fact that has absolutely nothing to do with this case, only one scene in The Godfather was filmed in Sicily, and there is now a Mafia museum in that spot. All the members of the Sauter family that were out the house that night are all dead now. Sylvia, the youngest died in April of 2021, but her daughter has taken up the responsibility of keeping her mother's sibling's story alive. Sylvia had always believed that her siblings survived that fire. I personally agree. If only for the fact that they were unable to find any remains of the children in the rubble. I think that they were lured away while tending to the farm animals outside that night, which would explain why the lights were still on and why the door was unlocked. They simply had never made it back inside to complete the request of their mother before going to bed. There were reports of someone watching the children in the days leading up to the fire, and even if the other reports, like the balls of fire being thrown onto the roof and that bizarre threat from the insurance salesman, even if all of that was bogus, where are the bodies? You can find us on Twitter at A Earful, capital A-E. We are not on Instagram as of yet, but you can find Jordan on Instagram and Twitter at perfectly underscore wild with an E. And me, DQ, on Twitter at D-A-Q-U-I-N-T-O-N, capital A-N-D-E-R-S, so it's the Quentin Anders, and DQ04 on Instagram. Our Facebook is a fearful earful all one word and you can email us your creepy stories or topic suggestions at a fearful earful pod at gmail.com if you like what you hear the best way to support the show is to leave us a review on itunes share with everyone you know and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app we're available on anchor spotify stitcher apple Podcasts, and google Podcasts. A Fearful Earful was created by me, Jordan Anderson, with co-host DQ Anderson. All A Fearful Earful art was created by Gerilyn Anderson, my sister, and music is by One Wave, licensed through Premium Beat.